Good morning, Steve Dale's Pet World on WGN. I am so excited about this show. We now know, because of the man we are about to talk to, so much more about arthritis in cats, how often it occurs, when it occurs, and what we can do about it. Oh, but first, Taylor Resvani has an idea, and it's brilliant. Well, it's not completely your idea. So dog trainers have been talking about this for a while. You help train dog trainers at the Whole Dog Academy, Taylor. Uh, And also, you're speaking here. We're at the VMX Veterinary Conference in Orlando, Florida, about what's called consent training or cooperative care in dogs. And explain what that is, and then I will tell you something that you will say, wow, I agree. (laughs) Or maybe you'll say, you're crazy, Steve. We'll find out. But first, explain what this is. Yes, so consent in the veterinary practice or cooperative care is providing a space for the dog to say, yes, I agree to participate. I am choosing to do this. I am choosing to have my weight checked. I'm choosing to have my nails trimmed. And I agree that this is an okay thing for me. And the goal of this is really to support animal welfare, particularly the dogs, um, in addition to supporting the welfare of the veterinary team and the owner and supporting the human-animal bond so that this is less stressful. Yeah, yeah. In fact, you and I are on the Human-Animal Bond Association Education Committee. All right. So I was talking to a a dog, Victoria Stilwell, a dog Mm -hmm. trainer, uh, and for years now, I've been moderating from the American Veterinary Medical Association a dog bite prevention panel they have during Dog Bite Prevention Week. And I don't know if we did this quote on the air or off the air because sometimes I get confused. But, but Victoria and I were talking about this, and I thought, you know what? If we did this sort of thing and com- could communicate a challenge now to the public, about what the dog is saying. So here's what I'm saying. Appropriately, very appropriately, we've been taught forever and ever and ever and ever, uh, don't just pet that dog, especially when you have kids with you. Ask the handler, can I pet your dog? Right? Kind of basic one-on-one. And that's good, but I think we can do better. I think we need to ask the dog. Absolutely. You're shaking your head. Absolutely. So you can probably read my mind as to where I'm going next. What do you think? Yes, absolutely. And I think there is a pretty simple consent test that you can do with dogs where you, again, provide you welcome them into your space. So not reaching your hand out to the dog, but showing that you are open for them to approach you should they choose to do that. And then if they do, you can engage with them, pet them five seconds, pull your hands away and look and see what do they do next? Do they continue? Do they keep rubbing their head all over your lap or do they walk away and take some space and And really listening to that? uh, Totally right. I totally agree. That's brilliant. But even before that, I would suggest that the handler who thinks they know their dog may not be thinking that they know they may not know the dog as well as they think. For example, yes. yes, go ahead and pet my dog. My dog is so happy to see everybody. Meanwhile, the dog looks kind of stiff. The dog is heads turned the other way, not because there's something else interesting going on. They just don't want to look at you. Uh, maybe that tail is down, but that's an obvious sign that we kind of understand. So what yes. I'm saying is the signs may be really subtle. Yes. That the dog is saying, eh, I don't really want to do that. Now, it doesn't mean that the dog will bite people if the yeah. person does pet the dog. But 
isn't it right for the dog? I wouldn't go up to you and hug you necessarily if you didn't. So I would put out my arms and then you'd put out yours. If you think about it, we go through that process even when we hug people. But we don't with dogs very often. Yes, and there's there's a lot of different things going on here with that. And um, there are implications not only for that immediate acute interaction that is happening at that moment, as far as, like you said, maybe they won't bite at that moment in that experience, but you are then promoting this negative association that will persist, and they are building that over time, over time yeah. and they will become less excited about strangers, potentially, if they continue to be quote-unquote, forced into these situations of interacting when they are not feeling comfortable. And it is very important to be mindful of the dog body language. And I think we, as people, tend to look a lot at the tail and what the tail is doing, or maybe we listen to the vocalizations. Um, A tail wag does not always mean I'm happy to see you. It can mean arousal. It can mean stress. I'm paying attention. There's all sorts of different pieces of that to look at. And um, there is a disconnect that exists between what we know in the world of science and in the world of dog behavior and communication versus what the public understands and is exposed to. And so bridging that gap, there there is evidence that it is something that people can learn quite readily. So taking those moments to help educate everybody that we can about these subtle signals that dogs send and how to promote dogs sending us those signals, supporting those, reinforcing those with the dogs is very important. And looking at the whole picture of the dog and the context. You know, I think it's important to mention that as a professional, if you do in-home consults, a professional who's been training dogs, or for me, dogs or cats even, mm-hmm. I don't even need to see the animal instantly. If that dog comes up to me, great. That's wonderful. I love dogs. That's why I do what I do. However, if not, that's okay too. So if professionals, and most professionals feel that way, mm-hmm. right? I mean, yes, would you agree? Definitely. Yeah. Yes. So if, 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 professionals have that attitude, why not uh, somehow, some way, try to communicate the same thing to all of you? So here's an example of what I'm talking about. Uh, Do you know Aunt Bertha? So Aunt Bertha loves cats. And she comes over, but the cat doesn't love Aunt Bertha or anyone necessarily coming over, at least not Mm -hmm. instantly, and dives under uh, the sofa. But Aunt Bertha, because she loves cats, reaches under the (laughs) sofa to pull out the cat. Mm -hmm. Now, if Aunt Bertha gets scratched, whose fault is that? Absolutely, it's Aunt Bertha's. Yes, yes. Yes. So I think we need to do a good job somehow of educating pet parents, especially millennials and those of Generation Z, perhaps, uh, that, you know, it's okay that the dog not always be completely social. You know, I mean, think about it. How often do you have some people come over that may not be your friends, but if you have a significant other, they're friends more than yours, and you don't want to run out to say hello immediately. I mean, all of that we don't think about twice for people, but we yet expect somewhat unrealistic expectations, I think, from our dogs or our cats. Yes, definitely. And and it is okay for them not to be excited about every single person they meet, every single dog that they meet. And it's important for us as guardians of their welfare to be mindful of where they are and to support the people that we're engaging with in how to interact with them appropriately. Do you think sometimes 
with a dog that generally is great with other dogs and that dog is a bit cautious outside about another dog coming or even backs off altogether or barks at that other dog, do you think that dog, your dog, is picking up on something that you're not picking up on about that other dog? Quite potentially, they're very receptive to everything that is going on in a different way than we are. So we have to remember that they are a different species than humans, and they are perceiving the world in their own unique way. And so things that we might notice as being these big signals and stimuli in the world for us are not necessarily what is triggering them. And so we can't know necessarily what is exactly going on in their brain and what they're responding to. But what we can do is learn who they are as an individual, who they are as a species, and be mindful of what they are communicating to us and respond to that and support them. Excellent. Well, when we come back from a break, I want to talk about more about cooperative care And I want to use nail clipping as an example of that. And we will do that when we come back on WGN. Taylor Resvani is uh, the chief trainer, the head chef. Executive director. I knew that. (laughs) At the Whole Dog Academy. Uh, In essence, it's an organization that trains other dog trainers. Absolutely, yeah. That is one component of the work that we do, which is focused on education outreach about dog behavior. Also on the Education Committee of the Human-Animal Bond Association. I know about that because I'm co-chair of that very committee. You're speaking about at this conference we're at, uh, which is called VMX Giant Conference, isn't it? It is. Yes. I'm quite shocked with how many people are here, especially <laughs> coming out of the pandemic. It's, yeah, it's it's. <laughs> I think there are 27,000 people here is what they tell me. That is what I heard. I know. Well. It's amazing. So, And you'll be speaking about cooperative care dog training. Uh, what is that again? So cooperative care dog training is when we are providing space for the dog to communicate that they are comfortable with the situation with the procedures moving forward. And when the nail clipper comes out, how often does that happen? So we a lot of dogs, the nail clipper comes out and the dog is like, I don't want anything to do with it. Some dogs are just afraid and will run away. Some dogs are just afraid and will fight back. Neither one benefits the dog or the person is trying to cut those nails. So there must be a good way to do it. Yes, definitely. We certainly don't want to be in a situation where you are using all your strength to restrain the dog. They're pulling away. You then accidentally cut the quick, and it creates an even more traumatic experience. That quick is that blood vessel, and it keeps bleeding and bleeding and bleeding, and some people have experienced that. And what you said about holding down the dog, so... uh, I, I, Debbie Martin, who's a veterinary mm-hmm. technician, is, you know her? She tells a great story about when she was in practice holding down, I forget, it wasn't a very large dog. I don't remember the breed. And it wasn't only her. It was like five people holding down, years ago, years ago. Yes. And she tells the story herself, uh, holding down the dog with all her might. Yeah. And then the next day, not even being able to go into work, because she ached so bad. So yes. if it's a 30-pound dog and five people are holding down that, imagine how the dog felt the next day. Yes, definitely. This is not good for the human involved, for the dog involved, for the veterinary team. It's not good for anybody. So mm-hmm. we do want to really make sure that we are setting up a situation where the dog can feel comfortable, where it is physically safe for everybody, psychologically safe for everybody so let's go let's go through so the nail clippers comes out 
And with your way of doing it, which we're calling cooperative care, there are other terms for it as well. Yeah. Uh, what happens next? So we're basically looking for where's the threshold where the dog's comfort is and gradually pushing that back so that it can sustain throughout a whole complete nail trim. So for each dog that might look really different. It might be that one dog you walk towards the drawer where the nail clippers are kept and that is it. And that is their max that they and can handle. And actually what I tell people that uh, if the dog already is afraid, mm-hmm. which, you know, if you've got a puppy, this is when the start, you know. Yes. But, but if you have a dog that's already afraid, put the nail clippers in a different place in the yes. first place. Yes. And even get a different pair of nail clippers. Absolutely. So it doesn't look the same. But going from there, yes. so you go, you take out the nail clippers and I interrupt it. So go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. And no, and that's a great point, right? Anytime that we do have an oops happen, any scary situation, we do want to reset time, place, every factor that we can to create a new experience for them. So we want to start where their, their threshold is, start within that safe zone of where they're feeling comfortable and happy. And if it is a dog that's new to nail trimming, that might be pretty far in. And so we generally want to be looking at making this a positive experience. So using minimal restraint, asking for the dog to offer their paw rather than us holding it in space and Mm -hmm. and restraining and we will start again it might be with just touching the the nail clippers to the nails it might be that we can get a couple clips in of one nail at a time maybe we can do a whole paw but again continuing to to give space for the dog to continue to consent so we might then pause take some space back and then see do they continue to offer their paw out we want to be providing treats during this praise and really encouraging the dog to continue their participation and promoting this positively reinforcing in a fear-free way Mm -hmm. and ideally the dog will ask you know i come on keep cutting because i want more of that food yes definitely that's what we're looking for is for the dog to enthusiastically give consent. So we do have to remember that not offering consent is non-consent. Explain what you mean. So what I mean is if the dog is just tolerating in the space, that is not the same as giving enthusiastic consent. And that's what we are really looking for. Not just, I guess I can power through this, but I really don't want to do it. But we're looking for them to say, yes, cut my nails. I enjoy this. I'm not afraid. How important is this notion, this not only with uh, nail clipping, but just in general? So uh, you go to the veterinary clinic and you have the dog participate in a way in saying, I want to go on that scale. How important is all of this kind of mindset for the dog and for dog training? It's very important because it, it promotes the welfare. When we look at the five domains of welfare, Behavior is a piece of that, and within that is this idea of dogs having autonomy and control over their environment and their behaviors. And there are not very many spaces in their lives that they do have choice. And so anytime we can offer that and provide that, it is going to be very beneficial for them. And it creates a visit to the veterinary hospital that is more pleasant for everybody, and there there is... Research indicating that owners, if their dogs are fearful, they're less likely to go to the veterinary clinic. So if they are, if 
the dog is comfortable, the owners will bring them more often. It's pleasant for them, pleasant for the veterinary team. And it's um, a better exam, I would Absolutely. Yeah. You can get a more thorough exam, and then everybody is feeling better about the situation. The veterinarians can feel that they are they are providing ethical, humane care in a thorough and complete way, and that supports then their welfare as well as practitioners. So if a dog is uh, afraid of... I'm trying to think of another example aside from nail clipping, the brushing, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, 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 the afraid of being groomed, the hairbrush. Yes. Uh, is there a, does it matter if the dog, here's what I'm asking, can you teach an old dog new tricks? Yes, definitely, definitely. So it's it again is is looking at what is that individual's experience, where what are they bringing to the table, and looking at what their comfort level is, and starting from within the comfort level and gradually pushing that back using positive reinforcement. Well, I, I thank you for talking about this. I'm excited uh, about this because. This is something – so dog training conferences have been talking about this for a couple of years. Do you find though – but never before, to my knowledge, at a veterinary meeting. You are the first who will be doing this. But do you find that dog trainers are resistant to do this or are they embracing the idea? In my experience, they are – fully embracing this. I think it is really, really exciting. And I think it's really critical because I think veterinarians hold a very special place in that connection between science and the general public when Mm -hmm. we're looking at dog companionship. And so they, through interprofessional um, bonds and relationships that they can form with veterinary, with the behavioral team, then we can create a stronger impact overall. So that is consent as far as dog training goes. And I said, as you know, no one's ever, ever, ever anywhere talked about for cats the same thing. So I'll be doing that after your talk. Yes, which is very exciting. Oh, it's very scary. But it is, <laughs> it is very exciting, and I'm excited to do it. I always love being the first to give a talk about something. Uh, going mm-hmm. to find research on this, for you, probably it exists. For me, it did not, because yeah. no one's done this before. But if you can do it for dogs, you can do it for cats. Definitely. Well, Taylor, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. And yes, the dogs should have a say and participate in their care. I guess that's what we're saying. Yes. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I am so excited about the Lincoln State Cat Club Cat Show coming to the Chicago area again. I think this is their 61st annual. Last year, they had a record crowd, and I will be there on Saturday the 25th, talking about all sorts of things in the education ring, answering general behavior questions you might have about your cat. But in addition, talking about how to tell, and we've been talking a lot about this. We'll talk about this more in just a couple of minutes, actually. How to tell if your cat is in pain, and then if your cat is in pain, which happens far more often. I'm talking specifically arthritis in cats far more often than we ever thought. Now you can do something about it that was never on the market before. It's an all-new drug specifically for cats. We'll talk about that next with Dr. Duncan LaSalle's and the guy who did the studies, and I'll be talking about that at the Cat Show. I am truly honored to have this gentleman right here, Dr. Duncan LaSalle's, the Dr. J. McNeely Lindebose, Distinguished Professor of Muscular Skeletal Health at North Carolina State University, College of Veterinary Medicine. Thank you very much for joining us, and thank you, Dr. LaSalle, for all of the work you've done for, dare I say, decades. 
to, to hit his decades. Yeah, yes. to understand pain and how it is relevant for dogs and cats. We're about mostly to talk about cats here. Let's well, thank start. you very much for having me along. Well, it's a it's, pleasure to chat to you. So. I'm telling you, it's my honor. It mm. truly is. I've heard you speak many times. You're the best at what you do. Pet parents may not know your name, but this is this guy sitting right here is responsible for a lot of what we know. Well, I don't. Let you me are. just let me just you pull, you, pull you up here. I, I'm not sure I'm the best at this, but I am passionate about it, and I'm passionate because during vet school. I realized that we were not doing a good job of both recognizing and treating pain. And it was really those years in the clinic at vet school, I thought, well, that's, that's what I'm going to try and fix. And so I am passionate about it, and I spend a lot of time thinking about it, and it is wonderful to see how the field has moved forward, and now we do a much better job of acknowledging of recognizing and of managing both acute and chronic pain in companion animals. Which I still say you are in part responsible for. But no matter what, well, thank you. what you just said leads me perfectly into what I want to talk about. Because we've known for a long time. We've seen. We see it, especially with larger dogs. They tell us, I hurt. It's pretty clear. People can actually vocalize and say, ouch, I hurt. And we know about arthritis in people. But for a long time, it's been thought, because cats are very small, uh, they don't really suffer arthritis pain. So talk about that. You're absolutely right, Steve. So actually, let me take you back to about 1996, 1997, when I first made a really concerted effort to um, to try and better understand arthritis pain in cats, and essentially starting out by saying, is it present? Um, and a lot of feedback I got was, Duncan, that's not a path to go down. There's nothing there. There's nothing to find. Um, but I was convinced there was. And the reason I was convinced there was is because as a cat person, I was observing cats maybe a little bit more closely. And that's what we need to do with cats. You see, dogs are demonstrative. Um, and we force them to be with us and do things with us. We force the, them to go on walks with us, to jump in the car, um, to play activities with us. We don't do that with cats. And so we and don't... if we tried, it wouldn't work out well, very well yes, anyway. That's probably true. But it means we don't have the opportunity to really closely observe those cats. And so it's close observation that led me to say, hey, I think there's a problem here. And from there on, then really trying to understand how do we measure pain? How do we assess pain associated with painful joints in cats? So you could help me with this. There was one study that was done. I think it was literally 100 cats, but it might be wrong. Uh, it was an incidental finding. Uh, whoever did that study was looking for something having to do with a GI issue that I don't recall in cats. And what was found is that all of those cats, I think quite literally, showed signs of arthritis. And that early study, I think, then prompted people like you to say, oh my gosh, this isn't only my opinion. We can actually show this through x-rays and other ways to actually demonstrate this is real. Yes, you're right. I think the study you're referring to is one by Lizette Hardy, a colleague of mine at NC State. And one of the reasons, actually, why I took a job at NC State with that history of being interested in and concerned about pain control. And then further work we did later on really did define the burden of osteoarthritis in the cat population. And not only the burden of osteoarthritis, but importantly, 
the burden of pain associated with that because it's that joint pain that decreases the quality of life of cats through decreasing mobility, their ability to move around, decreases um, the quality of their sleep, mm-hmm. cognitive function, social relationships. And I do just want to mention one thing because this is very pertinent to everyone who has a cat. Cats need what's called 3D space. They need to go up and down. They need to get to high levels. And joint pain impairs their ability to do that. And once that's impaired, everything else becomes a problem. They become more anxious, more fearful, and that compounds the problem of pain. And I want to add one more thing to it. If they're painful, they're not grooming as often. Maybe not at all. And, in fact, fundamentally, like vertical space is important if you happen to be of the feline persuasion. That's right. The same is true if you happen to be a cat. You want to groom yourself. And not being able to do so then does something which we don't even completely right understand. You're right. I think you're absolutely right, Steve. Yeah. Yes, not being able to do um, those hygiene activities um, can lead to, let's call it depression yeah, and anxiety. I yep. um, I agree. Cats are and clean. And you should know that I know behaviorists, veterinary behaviorists, who would say some of those cats are actually clinically depressed. I completely agree. Um, cats are, are generally clean creatures and they don't like to have to poop outside the litter box. Right. But if they can't get in and out of the litter box easily, then they do. Yeah, of course. Uh, and also it impacts their temperament. And some of us may be saying, oh, the cat's just getting old. Well, that may be true. The cat is aging. We can do something about this. We always could, but now we can do a whole lot more. So is that true that people just excuse, well, the cat's just a cat. The cat just sleeps. Well, Older cats do sleep more. Uh, Older cats can get, quote-unquote, grumpy. But there's something going on, it turns out, and we now know that. Yeah, I think my starting point would be that um, when a cat is not moving around as much, when it's sleeping more, and particularly when it starts to become a bit grumpy, Mm -hmm. that's because of pain. Mm -hmm. Or that's what we should primarily be looking for. Yeah. And sometimes when that cat wakes up in the middle of the night and says, oh, you know, that... That didn't sound like a cat, really. It, but, that did not sound like a cat. <laughs> no, it, really, no. it sounded more like a sick coyote, perhaps. <laughs> right. But, 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 but you're they right, vocalize Steve. at three in the morning. There's a reason for it. They do. The vocalization during the night, the, the unsettledness during the night, you know, the moving around, those are all indicators of possible pain being present. You know, a- another thing. So I have this idea that after the age of about three or four or five, although... Arthritis can happen in cats even younger than that. Uh, Whatever that magic age is, though, that uh, once every couple of months, you take your phone and you record by video the cat jumping off a bed or jumping onto uh, an end table or some such thing. If you keep those videos and show the veterinarian who will say, oh, that looks fine, but there are ways to tell that are so incredibly subtle that that cat might be in pain. Steve, you've hit the nail on the head. I love the fact you brought this up. Now, there is nothing good that has come out of COVID except my realization of the value of video from the home environment. Um, And just being able to see how cats move around in the home environment. We, as the veterinary team, can tell so much. Um, And it's really, really helpful. So absolutely, I would say let's 
let's have the magic age as four. Mm-hmm. From the age of four onwards, a few times a year, capture video of your cats moving around in the home environment. Um, share those with your veterinarian and discuss them with your veterinarian. A great way to see the onset of what often people describe as subtle signs. They're not always so subtle, but signs of joint pain. Okay, so let's give one example. Cat jumps onto an end table, jumps off the end table, literally flies off. Like the cat is a bird. But in another video, the cat jumps onto an end table but hesitates just once before jumping up there. Could be eyesight. That's a concern. Could be the room is really dark and the cat can't tell. But it could be something else. Or, one more thing, the cat jumps off but kind of slides down more than flying off like the cat did. That is a classic one, Steve. So jumping down, normal cats, cats that don't have joint pain, will jump out in an arc, a beautiful arc away from that tabletop. Cats with joint pain will reach down. They'll hesitate, and then they'll reach down to shorten the, the jump shorten the jump down um and that is that is what many people describe as subtle to me that's not subtle that's obvious but you know but what that, to look for right and but that's why the video is so yeah. so useful because in the clinic these cats don't move around they right. they don't show us the veterinary team the activities that are problematic for them in the home environment perfect well now more can be done about it than ever before we will talk about the magic of this powerful news that we have for you and i guess it's not magic it's science but we'll talk about that next when we come back on wgn dr duncan lasalles who's with north carolina state university and these days if you're at a veterinary conference anywhere it seems on the planet dr lasalles is there talking about pain in dogs and in cats we're talking specifically about cats and we're talking about how often it is that cats actually have arthritis. Well, you've done some research, and it isn't a guess. You know how often it is, and it's more frequent than I think most people would think. Um, I believe I do know, Steve. (laughs) And it's not just my work, but this is backed up by work or corroborated by work of a number of other people. Dr. Margaret Gruen is one of them. That's right. She is brilliant. I I think she's amazing. She is, um, and I'm very fortunate to be able to work with her. We know that about 40% of all cats, by all cats, I mean across the age range, from six months to 20 years of age, 40% of all cats have not only osteoarthritis, the disease, the joint disease, but pain associated with that. And that's important to mention because, uh, and, and you'll tell me because I honestly don't know, but I know this, on humans... Uh, an x-ray can show even that you're bone on bone, as they say, right? And you should have pain, but not everybody does. Or they have different levels of pain. The person, one person may say, oh, I can barely move. I can't even get up. And the other person says, showing the same sort of x-ray. I feel it a little bit. And another person says, I don't feel anything. And it's exactly the same with pets, with cats and dogs. There's a mismatch between the imaging of joints, the imaging results, and pain. And the most important thing is to focus on whether or not there is joint pain. Um, and uh, so there are the, the, the prevalence, the burden of osteoarthritis in cats is far greater than 40%, but about 40% of all cats have both the disease and pain associated with that. And that's a lot of cats. That is a lot of cats, Steve. Yeah, do you think that number might even be low, that 40%? 
I'll reserve judgment on that because I think 40% is enough. Is, it's I mean, a we're lot. talking about almost half the cats. We are, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So that's a whole lot of cats. And historically, it's been called a multimodal approach. So you throw this at it, you throw that at it. So maybe laser therapy, maybe massage therapy, maybe a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug is commonly used in dogs. But a lot of cats can't take those for reasons you'll talk about in a moment. But there's been no, no one thing that can help, unless I'm wrong, maybe I am, one thing, weight loss maybe for a lot of cats can help, but one thing that can help every cat. Yeah, I want to pick up. <clears throat> I want to pick up on something you said there, Steve. You said a multimodal approach, and then you said throw everything at it. <laughs> and actually, you know, I think that's kind of what we've been doing. And here's why. Because in the United States, there have been no approved and proven therapeutics to control osteoarthritis pain in cats. And so as veterinarians, we've reached out in different directions, trying to do the very best we can. And some of those things are great. You know, laser therapy, that works. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. So great things to try. But we've really been kind of looking around, trying different things, throwing a number of different things together. And you mentioned non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. They do work for osteoarthritis pain in cats. A couple of drawbacks. One is they're given by the oral route. So it's an oral medication. And secondly, there are concerns about using them in cats with chronic kidney disease. So you mentioned oral. I want to make a point of that. Pilling a cat is not only potentially very difficult to do for many cats, but you're also impacting the human-animal bond because whenever you go near the cat at some point, that cat may run away, which is exactly what Steve, you don't want. Steve, let me tell you a really quick story. Yeah, yeah. So for years, I've been interested in managing, in diagnosing and managing osteoarthritis pain in cats. I've been diagnosing it. I've been doing my very best with treatments um, and recommending to owners a non once a day, gabapentin twice a day, this supplement, that supplement, package it up and sending it home and thinking nothing more of it mm-hmm. and i didn't mm-hmm. until one day i had to medicate my own cats Uh-oh. Uh, I, exactly that's when i realized <laughs> it's not easy it's a burden and yeah. i think that's something that we really need to acknowledge more okay so we have two minutes here so let's talk about something that is now available yes so uh, research of the last 20 years has indicated that something called nerve growth factor is an important driver of joint pain. And we now have what's called a monoclonal antibody that will bind to that nerve growth factor and prevent its effects. And this monoclonal antibody is designed for cats. It's called Frunivetmab. And it is a very effective once-monthly injection not relying on the oral route administration, mm-hmm. injection that controls and effectively controls joint pain in cats. Yeah, that's called Silencia. That's the product you're talking about. Correct. That's the and trade name. Would you agree that what you just said is a game changer? It's absolutely a game changer. Proven, predictable, consistent efficacy, a really good safety profile, and by injection. Now, the only downside for some people will be, okay, your veterinarian has to do this. So that means you have to carry or train your cat, but that can be done. And I would argue we're going to see, once the cat goes to the veterinarian five or six or seven times, that cat then will associate, I feel better after I go there. And the whole, the cats will actually be conditioned. Cats are really good associative learners. Yes. Yes. And so I think you're absolutely right. Once they feel that pain relief, once they're feeling better and happier, they'll start to associate going to the veterinarian as a 
It's a good, good thing. thing. Yeah, and going to the veterinarian is never a bad thing anyway. I've talked about this, that incidentally, now there's a possibility for the veterinarian to find stuff early on. And listen, if you're able to diagnose early, the prognosis is better but in general. I abs- absolutely agree. Yeah, yeah. Dr. Duncan LaSalle, it's an honor to have you here. It's been a Thank pleasure you. chatting to you. Thank you. So earlier in the program, I, I talked with Taylor Resvani about cooperative care or consent dog training, which if you're a dog trainer, you know about, I hope, probably, maybe. Uh, however, others may not. And, you know, so I have an idea, an idea to minimize and prevent so many dog bites. And for years now, I've been part of a panel from the American Veterinary Medical Association to talk about dog bite prevention during Dog Bite Prevention Week. And I happen to come up with this idea. You know, we've been taught appropriately. Oh, so you're walking down the street and you have a child with you that the child must ask the handler of that dog, can I pet your dog? And even for adults, if you don't know the dog, of course, ask the person walking the dog, can I pet your dog? Yes, we, we need to continue doing that. But we need to do one more thing. Let's ask the dog. What's he talking about? Well, I'm not as crazy, well, I might be, as I sound, but here's the thing. So the person's walking the dog. Someone says, can I pet your dog? And the person handling the dog knows my dog is generally friendly and says, of course, and really isn't paying attention to what their dog is saying. So maybe the dog is looking in the other direction. Maybe the dog is standing stiffly. Maybe the ears are back. The tail is down, tucked between its legs. The dog is clearly, clearly in that case saying, I don't want to be touched. I don't know why. Maybe the dog is hurting at that moment. Maybe the dog is just in a bad mood. Believe it or not, dogs can be in bad moods. It doesn't much matter why. That dog is saying, don't touch me now. And if we listen to what the dogs are saying, I bet we can minimize dog bites, especially dog bites happening to kids. We need to communicate more of all this to pet parents. We'll talk to you next week, bright and early, on WGN.